today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, budget or Jody Wilson-Raybould? What do Canadians really want to hear about? And the latest involving Boeing 737 MAX 8s, they are still grounded after similarities have been found between the Indonesian crash of last year and the Ethiopian Airlines crash of last week. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tomorrow is Federal Budget Day, also the day that the Justice Committee gets back into session. But let's uh, refer to the budget first. Let's bring in Howard Ramos, uh, Professor, Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Dalhousie University, and is with us now. Howard, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So are Canadians more interested in the budget or the Jody Wilson-Raybould thing that's going on? What do you think will demand more attention tomorrow? Well, I think that the budget will definitely get a lot of attention from mainstream media, but most Canadians usually don't pay that much attention to the details of a budget. Are the Liberals hoping for this to be a bit of a distraction from what has been going on with the SNC-Lavalin affair? Well, certainly it's important for them to be able to launch a budget that's going to set the tone for the next election. And uh, given the amount of attention that the uh, Wilson-Raybould affair has been having over the last month or so, uh, I would imagine that many Liberals are hoping that it's going to change the the focus and change the discussion. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, budget day is usually a big deal for for people like us and in news agencies and, and political scientists and stuff, but not perhaps much to the average Canadian. Will it be different this time because of what's going on? I certainly hope that uh, people pay a little bit more attention, because if we go back to the SNC-Lavalin affair, it really all begins in the budget last year. Mm. Uh, Tucked away somewhere in that large budget package was uh, the move to a deferred prosecution agreement. So it's important for us to be able to look at the budgets and and see what's going on, because that's going to structure what happens in the coming year, and and for that matter, the coming next uh, few years. Uh, the interesting point about, as you uh, pointed out, the, the start of the SNC-Lavalin affair and, and certainly with changes in, in the deferred uh, prosecution uh, and such appeared in the budget uh, last year. Do you think we'll see something like that appearing in this one? It's always hard to predict what's going to be there before you see it, and I'm not privy to any of the embargoed information that's being uh, shuffled around Ottawa these days uh, in in the lead-up to the budget. Uh, I haven't heard anything directly relating to that. I have heard a lot about housing and other kinds of issues that uh, seem to be gaining attention from uh, voters. Uh, let's start with housing. Uh, we are starting to hear little leaks about how they will try to make it easier for first-time home buyers. Any ideas, any thoughts what they might be able to come up with there? Well, there's probably about three areas that they can focus on. They can focus on policy around the stress test, uh, so how much money you need to have in order to get a mortgage. Uh, there's some leverage they have around uh, increasing the non-refundable tax uh, benefit that you can have as a first-time uh, buyer. And they also have some leverage to work around uh, how long a mortgage uh, lasts. Uh, we normally have 20, 25-year mortgages, whether uh, or not we could have a 30-year mortgage. So those are things that I think most people are looking for. Another area that uh, they can make some contributions to is around the housing strategy that was announced in Budget 2017, I believe, uh, and and also looking at not just how we can make it easier for people to purchase houses, but how we can have more affordable housing in terms of our rental stock and and public housing as well. How big an issue is that for Canadians, do you think? It's a gigantic issue, especially if you're under 35 years of age. Mm. Uh, If you look at some of the polling that's been out, I'm I'm looking at one that's a Zucasa poll, uh, that shows that 82, uh, 82% of the people that responded to that poll uh, consider uh, housing to be a major issue that has negatively impacted their lives. So this is a, one of the big issues, that I think, that are going to affect people in this upcoming election. It also affects seniors uh, as they're uh, trying to scale down and, and move into condos and different types of housing. So it's, it's a very important issue for Canada. Uh, is the economy, the housing market, uh, many talked uh, specifically in Ontario about how the stress test should be uh, lightened up a little bit, be relaxed a little bit. Uh, how do they find the balance here? I think that that's one of the important questions to ask is, is this budget going to try and aim at Ontario? Is it going to try and aim across the country? Is it going to aim at issues that uh, are are issues for millennials? Uh, Certainly, if you look at the GTHA, uh, the issue around housing, it's out of reach for the average person at this point. 
And uh, how much of this do you think is in consultation with the banks? Uh, how would they feel about all of this? I guessing, I'm guessing any relaxing of, of laws and such can only benefit them in the long run. Certainly, I imagine that the business community will be open to this. Uh, it should end up driving uh, construction, which has been one of the pillars of the southern Ontario economy. Uh, certainly for banks, it means that uh, they can lend money uh, to a wider range of people for a longer period of time. So I don't uh, expect to see much resistance uh, to any kind of measure around this issue. Uh, Pharmacare was an issue that came out a couple of weeks ago. There was uh, uh, information leaked that uh, perhaps this was going to be an issue. Your thoughts on this, and again, affordability. Well, certainly Pharmacare is an important issue, especially for people who are low-income or people who are seniors. Uh, I'm not holding my breath on Pharmacare, given just the price tag that comes with it and uh, the hard way of pinning it as a one-to-one win. Uh, However, anything is possible. Uh, do you think that there will be more in this budget than typically in an election budget because it is to act as a distraction as well, perhaps? I'm not expecting it to be over the top. I, I do expect that it'll be like any budget that happens in, in the last year uh, of a mandate, one that's going to open the purse strings somewhat and, and try to hit the issues uh, of the constituents and, and citizens that the, the party's trying to win over. As you said, uh, you know, last uh, budget of the mandate uh, usually comes with with uh, some more presence in there. How do they balance that with what they've reported in the ba- uh, campaigned on campaigned on in the past in regard to deficits and such? How do you think they'll balance that? Well, certainly uh, they've broken that promise. Uh, mm-hmm. We weren't supposed to be in deficit in, in this uh, budget or the previous budget. Uh, however, they can point to uh, the windfall in tax revenue because of better job numbers uh, over the last year. And, and they can also point to uh, how well the economy is doing in terms of uh, lower rates of employment. And uh, when you compare it to the rest of uh, the G8 or, or to European and U.S. nations, we're doing quite well as, as an economy. So, yes, we're taking on debt, uh, but they can point to the, some wins of, of saying that it, it's, it's a low uh, debt Uh, cost right now in terms of interest rates and and that they can show some rewards that people on the ground can actually feel and see. What do you think, uh, and obviously we're we're guessing at this point because the budget hasn't been released, uh, opposition, what do you expect to hear from them tomorrow? Well, certainly the opposition uh, from the Conservative point of view is going to focus in on, uh, hang on a second, uh, this is a deficit budget. can we keep on doing this? Uh, they will focus on trying to pivot the attention back to the SNC-Lavalin uh, and remind Canadians that uh, a number of promises were broken. Uh, for the NDP, a lot of their uh, platform will have been taken over by uh, the Liberals, as in the last election. Uh, however, I think that you can see them probably responding around issues uh, of housing, uh, pharmacare, uh, and asking to push uh, the needle a little further. Uh, and then you have other parties like the Greens or the Bloc Québécois or uh, Maxime Bernier's new party uh, who all will be vying for some attention as well. Uh, Jagmeet Singh now uh, has a seat in the House. What's his biggest challenge moving forward towards this next election? His biggest challenge is just for Canadians to get to know him and to get to have some faith that it makes sense to move from the Liberals back to the NDP. I think that one of the things I'm watching for over the next uh, number of months to the election is uh, what's going to happen in terms of the bump that the Liberal Party got in the last election from younger voters, uh, from women, and from uh, people who normally voted NDP who voted uh, for the Liberals because they didn't want to have the Stephen Harper government. So it's really about getting attention, getting some traction, and getting people to have some faith that uh, they can actually have a credible left-of-center platform. How can, and you know, uh, the same thing happened at the provincial level in Ontario, how does the NDP position itself when the Liberals, as soon as, as, soon as the NDP comes up with something that seems to you know, get a bit of traction, uh, the Liberals you know, take a little swoop to the left and, 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 and scoop some of that uh, limelight? How do they balance that? Where do they, how do they find the mainstream? Do they have to keep going more and more left? What, how do they identify themselves as a party moving into this election? I think that the best tack they have for them is to point out uh, the broken promises, the flip-flops that the Liberals have had with the Trudeau government. Like many Liberal governments, they uh, electioneer on, on the left, and then when they govern, uh, they kind of tailor back to the centre. And when you look at economic policies, 
uh, things like the pipeline. The Liberals uh, really have lost ground in, in terms of, of the moral high ground on that in terms of the left-of-center uh, advocacy. So th- this is the place where the NDP can try and gain back traction of saying that they will deliver and will be consistent to what they say on, on the election uh, platform. Considering what has happened and the dip the Liberals have had with the SNC-Lavalin scandal and such, uh, ha- have the opposition taken advantage of that, whether it's Jagmeet Singh or Andrew Scheer? Uh, so far, no. In fact, when you look at the polling, what a lot of people aren't paying attention to is uh, the rise has largely gone for, into the undecided, and that usually correlates with people who aren't voting. So it's not like uh, Canadians are rushing to Andrew uh, Scheer uh, as an alternative. Uh, I think that Canadians are very skeptical of him and, and see him very much in the same light as Harper. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that Canadians have uh, warmed up to the Conservative Party in, in, in that style of politic. And Jagmeet Singh has had a lot of trouble gaining traction and gaining presence and, and having voice. Uh, so, so far, what we can see is a lot more undecided, and that usually leads to uh, non-vote. And if that's the case, who knows what we're going to get in terms of the next election. Is this budget likely to turn the page on Jody Wilson-Raybould and what is going on, or will this just be a minor distraction, and then by uh, the day after, we'll be back to that? Uh, that's a hard one to call. Uh, I imagine that it certainly is going to shift the attention for a couple of days, However, at the end of the day, Trudeau never gave a, a straightforward apology to her. Uh, she remains in the caucus, and it's a matter of uh, seeing whether or not the, the, the page can turn, because there's certainly enough uh, things hanging, the same with the committee, uh, which is actually meeting on the same day of the budget, uh, that can keep the story going. So it's hard to tell, but uh, it doesn't seem like all the flames are out. Your thoughts on the performance of the clerk uh, to the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, and his two appearances at the, uh, his two uh, chances to testify? Well, he certainly, most uh, clerks of the Privy Council, nobody can name. He's certainly come out of the woodworks and become a, a central figure uh, in, in Canadian political discussions. And, and I think that that is very unusual and, and atypical for most clerks. Uh, in terms of his performance, he certainly didn't uh, shut the issue down, uh, which led to inviting uh, butts and uh, led to a whole series of additional questions. So uh, I, I don't think he necessarily uh, helped close the issue. He, he uh, opened up a whole bunch of uh, areas to ask more questions. Uh, will, uh, will there be more changes in, uh, through the prime minister's office as a result of this to, to, to somehow put this to bed? Well, certainly the thing to look for is who's going to replace uh, butts in the PMO, uh, if there is anybody who could replace them, uh, as well as to look at how people campaign on the ground. Are they going to campaign about what they did for their riding, or are they going to campaign for the big liberal brand and, and Trudeau, which is the way they campaigned in the last election? And that will really give us a sense of how united the federal liberal party is, because it seems that from this uh, affair, what's most telling is that there are cracks within the party in terms of how people feel uh, about the government. Do you think we're going to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould again? Well, she uh, issued uh, a statement over the weekend, if if I'm correct, uh, to her constituents. So I I imagine that we will hear from her. She is going to election under the Liberal banner. Uh, How we're going to hear from her is, is unknown. So you're not sure if she'll testify again? Well, that's all a matter of the committee in terms of whether they invite her. And it's important to remember that she, she does have the ability to speak outside of Parliament. Well, she actually can speak in Parliament. Uh, she can speak in, uh, in, in her constituency. She doesn't just have to speak at, a, uh, at the committee meeting. What do you think her end game here is? What's her goal? What's she trying to accomplish? Because, you know, if it's the truth and getting out perhaps something that sheds negative light on the party, how does she balance that with her her uh, uh, commitment to the Liberal Party, and then the, then obviously this information could be damaging to them in the next election. I think the only person that can accurately answer mm-hmm. that is, is, is her. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can only speculate from looking on the outside. Uh, if you take her at face value, she's really trying to bring in accountability to politics. And what I find interesting about her and Phil Pott is they're both people who are new to the Liberal Party or new to running for office, uh, who had successful careers outside of uh, politics. Right. Uh, and when you bring in people that have a, a, another job they can return to, this is what you get. You get people who have strong views and, and who aren't afraid of, of bucking uh, the party uh, whip. Do you think the new attorney general will do what the old one wouldn't? 
Well, his, certainly uh, the new attorney general is in quite the bind. Uh, if he does, uh, Canadians are certainly going to be asking questions. Uh, if he doesn't, we're still stuck in the same issue of pressure that she was facing. So uh, I, I certainly don't uh, wish to be in his shoes. With us has been Howard Ramos, Professor, Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Dalhousie University. Howard, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow is the federal budget uh, is dropped. It's it's in, in released, and 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 apparently we're all so excited about that that we really don't care about the SNC Lavalin controversy or or Jody Will uh, Jody Wilson Raybould or any of that anymore. We're just eagerly sitting here, like sort of like kids on Christmas Eve, waiting for Santa to arrive and come down the chimney with all kinds of neat little surprises. Uh but where do we go from there? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, has been advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers and such. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to be here, Scott. Yeah, as you say, the great distraction, or so the government hopes, uh, is coming tomorrow with the federal budget. They're not wrong thinking that it sometimes can give them a lift or governments a lift because it does eat up a lot of oxygen. question is, will Canadians be taken by whatever the government offers to them and forget about all of the lab scam. I think not, uh, but we shall see. Uh, so will this be any different? Will this budget be any different as a result of that? Uh, are they sitting in a back room saying, okay, I know we've got this bag of goodies, but we've really got to make it sound good because we've got to distract from this. Uh, is there, or, or are they just on the old budget uh, road and, and, and that's where they're going? Uh, well, I, I think they're hoping the budget will give them uh, the, the the window they need to uh, at least put uh, the the lab scam in the rearview mirror. I, you know, again, I don't know. Uh, certainly, what budgets tend to do, and and you've heard some of the leaks already. We can go through them in a moment. Is focus on areas where the government is hoping to get votes or target areas, regions of the country. Areas where they perceive vulnerability. One of the things that has been pushed out uh, already today in advance of tomorrow's budget is some sort of program that's going to help uh, first time home buyers uh, buy homes more easily. Details unknown at the moment, but if you assume a lot of that group, those first time home buyers are millennials, that's the sweet spot for this government. Millennials helped them get elected last time. So they're hoping that that, with the millennial cohort, may uh, dampen whatever frustration that voting group has uh, with the way the Liberals have uh, allegedly conducted themselves over the last number of weeks. Uh, that seems to be the major piece at this point, although many are talking about pharmacare. I'll also remember that uh, that leak came out during the SNC-Lavalin deal a, a couple of weeks ago that something was going to happen there. Uh, do those seem to be the two major pillars here? Uh, rural broad- broadband for everybody, again, which is sort of a values one. Uh, it's going to be awful expensive to to happen, but they've pushed that out as well. What are the one and, and then that I think they think will there'll be certain parts. Uh, liberals don't have a lot of rural seats, but I think they're probably hoping in the in the rural seats in Atlantic Canada and and the West and in the North. Uh, where they have that this will be helpful to hold them there. Uh, the other thing that's sort of interesting is it's been foreshadowed today that, uh, lo and behold, the deficit is going to be lower. So that may, if that's accurate, and uh, that, that may be a bit of a, uh, a shiny bobble for the so-called blue liberals who um, aren't, uh, aren't, aren't always super happy with the Liberals' economic performance, may be turned off again by what they've seen over the way, over the last number of weeks in terms of the way the, the government has managed itself. But if they see that the deficit, uh, numbers are lower and the government's making some progress there might, might help them. I mean, these are all, uh, the thoughts that are going through the Liberal archi- the Liberal budget architects' minds right now. We won't actually know if any of this stuff has an impact for weeks. What about climate change? Uh, it was uh, quite an issue in the week leading up to where we are today. Uh, is this still going to be a center pillar? Well, I mean, it will be one way or another because on April 1st, uh, it, uh, you know, carbon 
taxation or pricing, again, pick your poison, where jurisdictions that don't have it are going to have it imposed on them. So whether it's in the budget or not, uh, that that's coming up on us uh, quite quickly. I'm sure the those who oppose it will turn it into some April Fool's stunt and, and try and, uh, and get at the government that way. So as you can see, even in our conversation, we've just gone headlong into the budget, and that's what the government hopes people will be doing over the next number of days. And in the third or fourth sentence, they'll get to whether Jody Wilson-Raybould should testify again because, of course, the Justice Committee is meeting tomorrow behind closed doors on the big oxygen-eating day that is Budget Day to determine whether or not she will be given another opportunity to speak. And as I'm listening to you talk about the various leaks that we've you know, uh, heard of over the last several days, even week or so, or weeks or so, is that enough to change channels? I mean, you know, I don't think Canadians care about this stuff on a good day. Again, it depends what the reaction is. Uh, so what happens is this, right? So Parliament is sitting this week. Today is also Jagmeet Singh's first, Jagmeet Singh's first day in Parliament. Budget is tomorrow. There'll be a debate on the budget Wednesday, Thursday. Then they're off again for a week. So it may change the channel for a few days. The opposition, the Conservatives, said they're going to try and make all of this week about SNC-Lavalin. So that's the fight, right? Who's going to win the communications war up here, and what are Canadians going to want to hear about? I think it's going to be hard for the Liberals to change the channel if they don't, uh, to use Andrew Shear's campaign phrase about Jody Wilson-Raybould, let her speak. I, I think that's going to be a tough one, no matter how good they believe the budget may be for their supporters and potential voters. That being said, they're the ones with the remote in their hand. Yeah. They're the ones that are capable of doing this. So many have said, well, they're not going to let her speak again because she said all that we need to hear from their perspective, or, or they don't want to hear anymore. And and furthermore, she can speak on her own if she wants. She doesn't need to have a, a justice committee or, or what have you. So what is in this? We've talked about this before. What is in this for her? What does she want out of this? Why don't they give it to her? Why don't they just put the whole SNC-Lavalin thing to bed and then move on with it? It's a great question. I, I guess they're worried about how she will respond to some of the things that Jerry Butts said in his testimony, what Michael Wernick said in his second round of testimony, and remember, he did have a second round, which makes it difficult from a fairness perspective to say she shouldn't. And what the prime minister said in his uh, apology, non-apology news conference of, uh, of, of 10 days ago. So I think that's what the concern is. I mean, there's this really fascinating part. I think we talked about this last week when the story broke in early February and the Prime Minister was doing a series of news conferences and responding to this, and there were news conferences related to other events, to be, to be clear. Uh, and at first he denied the story, and so the Globe and Mail wasn't accurate. And then, uh, I think it was the same day, and maybe in the second news availability, he said, look, you know, if my minister, because Jody Wilson-Raybould was then a minister, um, was opposed to uh, what we had done or, or didn't like it, she would have resigned from the ministry. Lo and behold, the next day she does. In between, there are three conversations or two or three conversations between the prime minister and the uh, and the justice minister. Prime minister also, or former justice minister, the prime minister also said then that uh, in one of those news conferences that he had when he had talked to Jody Wilson-Raybould, they'd agreed on the version of, of of things that had happened at that time. They remembered exactly the same things. I am sure that's why the liberals don't want to have her speak again because she will. Pres I'm, I'm, I doubt she's going to present an identical view to those three conversations. If this whole debate, as the prime minister says, is about different perspectives, uh, so maybe that different perspective and the erudition of that different perspective isn't something the government wants out there. But if, obviously what's happened in here, Tim, is if she opens her mouth, if she says something, if she speaks, they'll look bad. They'll get stabbed. They'll bleed. Yeah. Uh, or that, certainly that's their fear. Um, so why I, don't her, why, why don't they and her sit down and try to find common ground here and a common statement that will feel that will, and here am I giving them advice that, that, that will, that will make everybody 
move on from this from this situation because she's committed to being a liberal, as she said over the weekend, yet she wants to reveal information that theoretically could kill her party in the next election. So how does she balance that? What does she want out of this? Okay, well, we're, we're going to take a hit, but I want the truth to come out anyway. Well, I think I also saw her say that this should be, you know, some lessons in here on how we can improve the way we govern ourselves and the way we operate. So perhaps the prime minister has to come forward with something uh, that, that that reflects that. I, I think the prime minister and his team are nervous to sit down with her because they believe, uh, I suspect, nobody's told me this, that uh, they could be betrayed uh, and they're trying to batten down down the hatches, and she may feel the, the same way because, again, if they both leave the conversations with this alleged different perspective, what's to say that won't happen again? So uh, perhaps they're living by that old adage, Scott, that time heals all wounds, uh, and they're going to wait a little bit longer, get through the budget, and try try some reconciliation then. But uh, I don't see them rushing back to embrace each other with a pathway for forgiveness right now that doesn't seem to be being set up what can she possibly say about this that won't damage them nothing bingo uh, other other than to say look you know what uh, well i suppose sorry that's wrong i i think she could say you know uh i gave you my version of the of, of facts and what I believe to be happening. I, you know, I've, I've listened to the prime minister. I've listened to his team. Uh, well, uh, well, I understand they maybe didn't understand me. Uh, perhaps I didn't understand them. Perhaps the version that the prime minister is offering, uh, is the correct one. She could swallow herself a little bit and say that and, and buy the argument. Uh, she hasn't refuted it, uh, neither has she endorsed it at this point. So she could she could endorse the prime minister's argument and say, "Look, uh, we've all learned from this, and, and there's a way forward uh, for us to to be a better government for Canadians." Is she staying quiet until uh, she realizes what his, realizes what his position is or will be on the SNC Lavalin? Uh, case with the new uh, attorney general. Uh, in but, other words, will the new attorney general do what what Trudeau wants him to do and what J- Jody Wilson-Raybould refused to do? And is she waiting for that? Could or, be, but that would I, I I'd be very surprised if, if while Parliament is still sitting. So that you know, uh, but to me, when I say that, I mean until early June or late May. While there still is a session of Parliament before the election that the government make a decision there uh, supportive of a deferred prosecution agreement, because if they do, they're going to get pounded in the House of Commons for it, and that will generate lots of uh, attention. So I'm not sure that's what Jody Wilson-Raybould is doing. She's been around Ottawa now three years. She gets how media management happens. Um, She may be waiting, but uh, I think she'll be waiting a while for that to happen. And when it does happen... The temperature will be uh, very dramatically uh, turned down if the government gets its way. So she wants the truth to come out, even if it brings down the party that she's a part of. I haven't seen anything to suggest that isn't the case. I think where she is given, and you will hear liberals cite this, her party uh, protection, if you will, uh, is the statement she made in the Justice Committee, where she said she didn't, I think she was asked directly about this, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, that she didn't believe there was any criminal wrongdoing. So she thinks she's provided them with cover, and I suspect she also believes, and again, this is a statement I'm surprised hasn't gotten more attention from the Liberals. Maybe it is internally. It was an internal message, but you remember, she said she was also doing her job of protecting the Prime Minister and and making sure justice worked the way it should be. So... Mm. Yeah, does she want to bring down the government? I don't know, uh, but uh, her her ongoing public persona and its personification of being credible and legitimate and, and going against the grain could be hurtful to the uh, the liberal future of re-election, future chances of re-election. Uh, another cabinet shuffle to replace Jane Philpott. Uh, they're trying to whisk this one. You know, I, I mean, it's only one. Is it a big deal? But again, it still draws attention to why you're doing this. Oh, because Jane Philpott resigned. 
Yeah, but here's the thing with this one, Scott. Remember, in the early days of this, I mean, it seems like it was a year ago, there's been so much uh, water under the bridge, but in, in a couple of news conferences, the Prime Minister said, I wouldn't have had to shuffle the cabinet, meaning yeah. move Jody Wilson or Abel, if Scott Bryson didn't resign. So lo and behold, another Treasury Board Minister, Jane Philpott, resigns. Did they move around the whole cabinet? Yeah. No, strangely. Yeah. They oh. found one person to fill that position. Why wasn't that possible uh, a number of, uh, of weeks ago? Why couldn't they have simply put uh, in the new minister uh, now, in Joyce Murray now? If she's able to perform now, why wasn't she able to fill this role six weeks ago? That, and you know what, Tim? That's my whole point in all of this. The longer they drag this out, the more yeah. questions there are. Yes, exactly. And they, you know, I think they hope today, it was really interesting, we were doing some cabinet swearing in coverage, and in past, most every um, cabinet that this Prime Minister has sworn in, uh, there are always senior PMO people in the room, they're at the front, they're sitting, they're watching the ministers getting sworn in. Unless they were in the back, uh, the camera shots showed no senior PMO officials in this swearing in, which for me was very interesting and telling. I think in, in in part it was symbolism to show that a bit of a different approach. It was a smaller shuffle was probably also the reason. And some of those PMO people, one of them is gone, Gerald Butts. The other, Katie Telford, uh, I'm sure, didn't want to put herself through the the process of running through the media gauntlet and having to get out of there without answering questions because she certainly would have been questioned by reporters there who would want to know her take on things. Uh, as you mentioned, Jagmeet Singh, uh, first day in the House, his challenge moving forward, especially in wake of, of all of this. He's asking for an inquiry. Sheer asked for a resignation. Uh, moving forward, what does what does Singh need to do? Uh, perform well, uh, though you know, that's never necessarily a barometer for anything. Uh, your listeners all know, because they're pretty attuned to politics, as are you, that Tom Mulcair was a great performer in question period. Lo and behold, he finished third uh, in uh, the last general election. But I think Singh has to not make the same sort of mistakes he made uh, before he got uh, elected in, in Burnaby. I think he's got to be careful not to be held out on, on, on controversial issues and found wanting in terms of the answer. I, I think he, and he's more importantly perhaps for him, He's got to make sure his team feels like he's the guy to lead them and in, inject some confidence and momentum. Uh, I, I think Singh, uh, you have to give him a little bit of credit, I think of the three federal leaders, albeit he's a bit player in this, I think he's probably managed this whole SNC lab land, so-called lab scam the best. His position on uh, having a public inquiry was probably the most reasonable one, though he knew it's unlike their nose, it's unlikely to be achieved. But he hasn't made any major errors on, on this one, and he's been getting FaceTime and, uh, uh, and and seems to be doing a little bit better. But, man, the hill for the NDP is still quite high to climb. I haven't seen a poll that's had them in the, uh, you know, the, the 18 or 19 percentile range in a very long time. Is there much the opposition can do with this situation, or is it better just to let, you know, I mean, since, since uh, you know, it's a self-inflicted crisis for the other party, for the liberals, uh, are they best to just stay out of it, or do they keep pushing and drawing attention to it? I think you pick your spots. I, I mean, the conservatives may have shot themselves in the foot a little bit. They were... Uh, musing over the weekend, and you should never talk strategy. That's an old Stephen Harper axiom. Don't talk strategy, just do it. Uh, the conservatives were talking about using all sorts of procedural yeah. shenanigans, which are legitimate, even though they are a bit shenanigan-like, to delay the budget speech tomorrow and the budget vote. And if that had have happened, they would have gotten lots of airtime to say, hey, we're doing this because we want to hear more, and we want to make sure the Justice Committee's going to hear from uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould because they had telegraphed their intentions to do that. The liberals uh, circumvented the parliamentary calendar a little bit, as I understand it, to make sure that couldn't happen. Now, the public won't give a tinker's darn about that. But uh, So I expect you know the opposition will look for parliamentary opportunities to slow things down and to make it about getting answers and getting Jody Wilson-Raybould heard 
as as their their tactics over the next uh, and strategy over the next number of days. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategy as uh, Summa Strategies, and has served advisor to national parties and federal cabinet ministers. Tim, as always, thank you for the chin wag. Much appreciated. Take care. Talk to you later, my friend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Frank has written us a note in regard to uh, the 737 MAX 8 groundings and uh, forwarded, me a, uh, forwarded me a note uh, that um, you might remember the name uh, Captain uh, Chelsea Sullenberger. He was the pilot who skillfully, skillfully landed the U.S. Airways uh, flight on the Hudson River back in 2009, uh, had some harsh words for both Boeing and Ethiopian Ethiopian Airlines, and I'm not going to read you this uh, verbatim, but basically what he says is it's been reported that the first officer on the flight uh, had only 200 hours of experience, a small fraction of the minimum in the U.S., an absurdly low amount for someone to be in the cockpit of a jet airliner. Um, A cockpit crew must be a team of experts, not a captain and an apprentice. In extreme emergencies, when there is not time for discussion or for the captain to direct every action of the first officer, pilots must be able to intuitively know what to do uh, and to work together. They must be able to uh, collaborate uh, uh, wordlessly. So a very, very critical... um, uh, a critique from uh, Sully uh, on all of this. And I remember watching Sullenberger when um, I think he was on David Letterman with the crew, uh, which you also, I believe, see in his movie, in the movie about the story. Um, you know, he talked about his co-pilot having 20 some odd years experience. And that's would also allowed him to concentrate on what he was doing and basically glide the plane into uh, the Hudson River was that he had a extremely well qualified co-pilot beside him and was was very quick to praise the co-pilot in in what they had done and I remember uh, Sully actually saying that this pilot was so good he should be flying his own plane but due to cutbacks uh, he's now writing shotgun or was writing shotgun uh, to Sully. So interesting words. Uh, let's talk more about this. As I mentioned, the Boeing 737 Max 8 still grounded as the investigation continues into the Ethiopian Airlines crash. Uh, flight data suggests, and uh, the black boxes were recovered, they're in France now. Uh, flight data suggests that uh, there are clear similarities to uh, another crash that, uh, of course, happened in Indonesia last year. Uh, of a Lion aircraft. Uh, let's bring in Jock Williams. He's an aviation expert and on the line now. Jock, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, no problem. Glad to do it. Uh, so what we've learned over the weekend, this was similar to what happened with the Lion Air. Any surprises here in any of the information that's come out over the weekend? No, frankly, not at all. The uh, <laughs> When this crash first happened, uh, it must be a week ago now, it, it was apparent to, I think, anyone who does any amount of aviation in modern uh, jet airliner-type airplanes what probably happened. What you have to watch out for is the tendency to jump to conclusions, but sometimes the conclusions just stand out there amazingly, and that's the case in this particular instance. So, so basically, a lot of us would have come to the conclusion prior to having the flight data recorder or even looking at the wreckage. But you have to wait until you have some evidence. That's why the Canadian government delayed in taking action on this thing. But, of course, their action was proven right in as much as there hasn't been a subsequent crash. So their delay didn't cause any further fatalities, injuries, or losses in the aviation industry. So do you believe that now this, um, this grounding is warranted of this plane? Well, yes and no. The problem has to be solved. I'm not certain because I don't fly this particular model of the 737. I am qualified on the earlier models of the 737. But because I don't fly them, I haven't read the pilot manual on this particular chapter. Typically, from every jet airplane I have ever flown, aside from the military fighters that I used to fly, but on all the rest of them, there is a parallel mechanism, but there's a parallel warning in the aircraft flight manual. And the warning simply says this, in the event of inadvertent operation of this system, like what we would call a runaway trim, you simply disengage the system. You turn it off and it doesn't cause you any further problem. Now you can take over manually. There's a great big wheel sitting down beside you in most Boeing products. 
and you can manually adjust the wheel that needs to be adjusted, and you fly the airplane home and land it. So there's no surprises, but we still don't have all of the information. In a few days and a few weeks, they will have every single word that was said by either of the pilots. They'll have every single instrument reading, switch location, and so on. So I think we probably should wait till then. But most of us are pretty convinced that we knew from the beginning what happened. So uh, does this situation happen more than we know? It's just that the pilots know how to react to it? Or I, I is, this one, is this an anomaly? Yeah, I can't speak for how often it happens. I, I have had a couple of runaway trims, or what appeared to be runaway trims. And I took the action that I had been taught during my training on the aircraft type. It worked. And so I just simply fixed it up and came home. The, the problem is this, that the longer you wait before turning the system off, the more difficult it is to fly the airplane in the condition that you leave it in when you turn the system off. So if the plane has gone to full nose up, if it's trying to climb by itself and you stop it, you still have to fight the system. Yeah. But if I were doing this, I would first of all turn the electric system off and then I'd reach down on the right-hand side if I'm flying from the left-hand seat, reach down beside my right leg, rotate the manual trim wheel, and fix it up, take the pressure off, and I'm not fighting the system anymore. Now, that's what ought to have been done, but it's apparent in these two instances, if they were having trouble with a runaway trim or with an inappropriate trim, in neither case did the pilots take that action. Well, there's no legislating for what bad things will happen if the pilots do not execute the proper checklist recommended actions. So whose responsibility is this? Because, I mean, you know, many have said it's not the plane, it's the lack of training. Lots have said, well, the plane shouldn't be putting the pilots in this scenario anyway. So what is it? Is it Whose responsibility is this? Well, in the last analysis, speaking as a pilot, I can tell you that I will always get blamed if something happens to the airplane because I'm supposed to be able to fix it. Yeah. And in reality, that means that the company that hires me and the company that designs the airplanes that I fly, they both have an obligation to make sure I've been suitably trained and suitably warned about anything that can go on. Now, I, I cannot believe that any training facility, whether it's Boeing, uh, Canadian Aviation Electronics, SimuFlight, there's a whole bunch of companies that provide training. And most airlines have their own training department. I cannot believe that the airline training department and or whoever's doing the training failed to make clear to the pilots the importance of taking immediate action to stop any form of runaway trim or, or runaway stability augmentation system and then to resolve the problem and come home. But the, the problem is this. I wasn't in the cockpit. I hate second-guessing other pilots. These guys were scared and they were busy. And, and if they failed because of those circumstances to execute the perfect actions, well, I can't say that I would have. I would just like to think that I would have. So is it, is it uh, constructive to say that North American pilots are better trained for this sort of thing? These perhaps weren't. I mean, because, again, is No, I mean, we, we, can't, we can't say that. There no. are magnificent pilots that originate in Indonesia. The same thing would be true of China and Ethiopia, for sure. But one thing I will tell you is that in North America, Great Britain, Germany, France, uh, most of the countries of Northwest Europe, you would not find yourself as a co-pilot in an aircraft of this sort with 200 hours. You might have, you might have 1,500 hours, something like that. That's pretty much the lowest number that you're ever going to have in a guy occupying the right-hand seat of a major airliner. Now, it's hard to find pilots anymore because the airlines have made it so tough for young guys to get in, and they've got to arrive with this $1,500. Well, you know what that costs you to get? Yeah. If you have to rent an airplane yourself at, let's say, $100 an hour minimum to try to build up 1,500 hours, that's going to put you in the, in the poor house, let's face it. So that's part of the problem. Are you surprised that only two have crashed considering how many of these are in the air? No, I'm not at all. We could feasibly have gone for 20 years and not had this crash. It just, the circumstances had to combine. There had to be a slight control difficulty. Then there had to be a failure to take the textbook action. And then the plane had to be low enough that there wasn't time to fix the problem in a variety of other ways. There's about five ways of turning off one of these runaway stability systems. 
but you got to know those five. Usually on the final exam for your check ride, those five are to be listed by you in a split second without reference to any book or whatever, because you've got to know that. So the chances of guys not doing it, not knowing it, not doing it, are minuscule. What are the chances? They're so low I wouldn't even think about it, but we just disproved that theory. Um, Boeing issued another software update shortly after this crash. Uh, there's been chatter that perhaps uh, information going into it wasn't correct, therefore the plane thought it was doing something that it wasn't and react, and then you have the pilot fighting the airplane, of course. Um, so what did this originate with poor software? Not necessarily. I, people don't realize that software updates are issued all the time. Sometimes you might get a couple of software updates in a month. Other times it might be five or six months in between them. But it also might be just a couple days in between them. The second, the issuing authority, whether it's the Federal Aviation Authority, Transport Canada, or the aircraft manufacturer, Boeing, Airbus, as soon as they come up with something new, it behooves them to get that in the hands of the operators as quickly as possible. And usually when they send it out, it comes in the form of a CD, just plug it into the airplane and wait a couple of minutes, the plane digests it, and now it's in there. But usually if it's an important one, it will be right printed on the package that the thing arrives in. This thing has to be installed by X date, let's say by the 20th of March, and if not, the aircraft is grounded. And that's how vital they can be. Sometimes they're not vital at all, but we treat them all as if they're ridiculously vital because sometimes bad things happen. So it appears from the limited information we have so far, there's similarities with the crash in Indonesia. What then will the result be, do you think, or is it too early to well, determine Well, that? let me just point out another interesting fact. I was just thinking about it recently. There's also a tremendous similarity with the crash of an Air Canada DC-9 in about 1964 in Saint Quebec. It, too, had a runaway elevator trim, and the pilots, either through mischance or some other problem, failed to handle it properly. So this isn't the second crash. This is probably the hundredth time that something like this has come up. This is just the third one or the second one to to make the papers and to get on the, the national uh, news reporting scene. So what will be done to fix this? Well, basically, it may have been done already. It may be. I haven't, I haven't seen the service notice and so on that was published by Boeing, but that may solve the problem. But the biggest thing, like, that will solve the problem if the problem is software. What about if the problem is a forgetfulness of a pilot who, when excited and faced with a serious emergency, didn't carry out the, the proper action? That's the one that's hard to solve, and yet that's the one we're faced with, probably. Training is, is obviously mandatory, and experience is mandatory. Now, you can provide training, but the only thing that provides experience is doing something again and again and again. And we can't be sure of that, because both in China, India, Pakistan, many of the highly populated countries of the world, there simply aren't enough pilots, and we're trying to create them as quickly as we can. But you can't cut corners in the creation of pilots. Uh, some experts that have, have, on, have had on said that uh, this was a cost-saving measure. The whole idea is to make these planes easier to fly so a pilot can go from plane to plane to plane with relative <laughs> ease. Is, is yeah. that where we should be going? Is that part of the problem? Does well, I, I, I hate to admit this, but we used to say, given an infinite number of bananas, you could teach a monkey to fly. Mm -hmm. Flying is dead easy. You just have to do it right. And there's not many things you have to learn in order to do it. Hmm. But it's absolutely vital that you do those few things absolutely correctly. Hmm. And that's the problem. The monkey that you create with the infinite number of bananas, he's likely to make a mistake now and again. He doesn't even care about it. Lives are involved in this kind of training, and it's vital that we get it right. But whoever said that is correct. We Everybody is run by financial motive. The airline wants to pay as little as it can for the pilot they put in either the right or the left-hand seat. They also want to pay as little as they can for the airplane. The aircraft manufacturer, same thing. He wants to make a profit, so he wants to charge as much as he can, but pay as little as he can. All of, all of these things are well-known. Economics drives it, but we have to learn how to fix it. How long do you think these planes will be grounded? I hope not very long, because I, I can tell you that probably a billion dollars has already been lost on this grounding. 
And if they wait for two or three weeks or, or two or three months, as they could well, it, it could drive Boeing out of business. It could certainly drive any airline out of business. And for what? You know, what, what is it that's happening right now that's making airline uh, safety better? In reality, we're just dragging our feet, waiting until somebody comes up with enough courage to say, the problem is solved, let's go flying again. So what will be the solution to this problem? More training? Nobody with 200 hours gets to sit in a seat? I mean, you know, the software update, is that going to, then we're off and flying again? Yeah, all of those things together. No accident is ever caused by one single thing. In, in this example, if you didn't have a runaway whatever system it was, there would have been no problem. Okay, that's step number one. But that chain was linked to another piece of chain that said, and then the pilots don't do the right thing. Mm. Now you can have an accident. Just the thing going wrong in itself didn't cause the accident. What caused it was the combination of the thing going wrong and then it being handled incorrectly. And sometimes there's 10 or 15 links in the chain, and they all have to get together. Hmm. So every single aircraft accident is a function of a whole bunch of things interacting in a very unfortunate timing. And that's what we're facing right now. I I am not a believer that there would have been another crash in 10 days, 10 months, or even 10 years. There might have been, but there also might not have been. Uh, how ironic, too, that this system was designed to make the plane safer, to keep them up if something yeah, did go wrong. Yeah, to make it safe and to make it easy. That's right. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, it is doing that all the time, except in those in those bad circumstances when mm. something goes wrong. Remember, we can either talk about the two flights that went wrong in the last five or six months, or we can talk about the eleven or 14,000, I've seen both figures, of flights where nothing went wrong. Yeah. You know, and that mm. we are always inclined, they say, if it bleeds, it leaks. The media covers the things that get public attention, and nothing much more than a, than a crash with 150-odd people on board gets attention. So basically, you know, it, it's just a matter of we chose to look at the two bad cases instead of the 14,000 good cases. Jock Williams has been with us, aviation expert. Jock, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always good talking to you. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.